This episode is supported by Jace Medical. You may or may not know that in December, drug shortages across the U.S. hit a record high. This is causing severe disruptions in medical treatments, resulting in delays, treatment cancellations, and the unfortunate rationing of vital medications. I know that I have heard in the last few months from multiple mom friends of mine, instances where they have not been able to get medications for themselves or for their children in critical crisis moments. This is so, so scary. I know I've had friends with their kids having seasonal flu cold symptoms, struggling to breathe, and they're at urgent care and unable to get the antibiotics that they need because of these shortages. This is scary stuff. Most notably, one of the short supply antibiotics is amoxicillin, which is commonly used for so many of our children's illnesses. So here's where Jace Medical comes in. They have the Jace case, which is a personalized emergency medication kit that contains five essential antibiotics that are used for the most common and deadly bacterial infections. And you can also customize your case and add additional life-saving medications based on your or your children's family's unique needs, like an EpiPen, for example, something that you would never want to be without, would never want to have to run from pharmacy to pharmacy in pursuit of. So if you want to go get these medications and have your antibiotics on supply so that you always have them when you need them in case of an emergency, in case of a disaster, in case of being a, you know, a victim of this drug shortage, Jace Medical will have you covered. All you need to do is go to jacemedical.com and enter the code SHAMELESS at checkout for a discount on your order. That's promo code SHAMELESS at jacemedical, J-A-S-E medical.com, jacemedical.com, code SHAMELESS. This is the Shameless Mom Academy, episode 324 with Kara Lowenthal. Show notes for this episode, including any links mentioned in the episode, as well as any discount codes from our sponsors can be found by going to shamelessmom.com and clicking on episode 324. Welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm your host, Sarah Dean. I'm here to give you and other passionate, driven, unapologetic moms tools, resources, and a little bit of humor to help you lead more positive, powerful, and purposeful lives every damn day. One of the best things about the Shameless Mom Academy is our community, so be sure to join us in our free private Facebook group to connect with other shameless moms just like you. You can find us over at shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook. All right, let's dive into today's episode. Hello, mamas. I am so excited to introduce you to our guest today, Kara. I have to let you know in advance, this episode is explicit because, well, it'll be obvious in a minute. So go ahead and put in earplugs if needed or get little ears out of the room, whatever, or let them listen. I mean, it's high quality content in spite of a few F-bombs, which are necessary for the content. So you're going to see in just a sec. I just wanted to give you a little heads up. So here we go. Kara Lowenthal is a master certified coach and host of the Unfuck Your Brain podcast. Three years ago, she did what every Jewish parent dreams of for their child. She left her legal career, running a think tank, to become a life coach. Now she teaches feminist women how to undo the effects of patriarchy in their brain and create true, authentic confidence from inside. She has grown her coaching business from zero to seven figures in the last three years and is passionate about teaching women how to overcome anxiety and self-doubt so that they can take on the world. I have to tell you, I've probably recommended Kara's podcast, Unfuck Your Brain, more than any other podcast in the last six months. And I will tell you that 
people come back to me more than any other recommendation I've ever given to say, holy cow, this is impacting my life in huge ways. So I reached out to Kara and I said, please, please come on my show. Your work is impacting my community in big ways. So if you haven't heard me talk about the show, just know that Kara is a master thought manager and she teaches other people how to be master thought managers, which is a truly life-changing skill to be able to learn how to manage your thoughts in powerful ways and to learn how to filter your thoughts. Because what you're going to see, and Cara talks about this at length in her own show and all of her work, is that women in particular are not taught to filter their thoughts. Men are. Men can have like a negative self-thought go through their head and they're just like, oh, I'm like ignoring that. Like their egos just take care of it. They're like, oh, I look gross today, whatever. Like I'm going to let that one go. Whereas women, we internalize every thought that goes in our brain and we hold on to it and we give it validity and we give it like we give it space and we give it energy and this really really gets us in trouble in terms of staying in our own way and preventing us from taking massive action preventing us from being courageous and confident all sorts of things. So I wanted to have Kara come on and talk to you a little bit about thought work and talk to you about how you can start being a better thought manager, thought filterer. And so like I said, I've been recommending her show to people for the last six months or so. And people are just telling me over and over again, how much her work has transformed their mental game. So I knew I needed to get her on the show. Whether you're wanting to change the way you feel about your body or become a master thought manager in order to change the outcomes in your life, Kara's brilliance will transform your thought patterns and shift your behavior in powerful ways. So listen in to hear Kara share what thought work is and the power you have to choose your thoughts. The practice of shifting into neutral thoughts rather than forcing ourselves into positive thoughts. This was a big one for me because I'm like the power of positive thinking lady. So I really liked this part of the conversation. She also shares why you should embrace that all humans suffer, why thought work is more valuable and beneficial than any diet, and how thought work can shift your relationship with your body. I love Kara's work. I'm so, so honored to have her on the show and so excited to share her brilliance with you. So with all that said, and without further ado, let's dive in with Kara Lowenthal. Kara Lowenthal, welcome to the Shameless Mom Academy. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thanks. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be really fun. I feel like you talk really deeply around a number of different concepts that I have opened up into my community recently. And so I'm excited to dive deep and probably expose myself as a stalker because I have <laughs> been listening to so many interviews with you recently and having my mind blown and my heart exploded and all those kinds of good things. All right. Well, let's just keep our expectations at like one of those for today. We should be in good shape. <laughs> Not keep it too big. So I'm going to let the audience know I was first connected to you through my friend, Deb, Deb Hardy. She mm. got me just kind of fam briefly familiar with you and your work. And then I started following you on Facebook on your personal page. And I was like, who is this woman? I need her to just be my roommate because everything you post <laughs> on your personal, I mean, you post great stuff on your professional pages as well, but on your personal page, you are like the constantly sarcastic and also brilliant friend that's saying what everyone else is thinking, but doesn't quite usually say. <laughs> yeah. My hashtag could be no filter since 1981. <laughs> yes. Which I love and appreciate. And I think that we all love having this, like we love when we're scrolling through social media and we know there's certain people we can stop on and be like, I know this is going to be good and it's going to be funny and it's going to be <laughs> smart. Like, I don't know. It's, it's going to fuel me in some sort of way. So that's who you've become for me. And I wanted to just, acknowledge you and appreciate that piece of our relationship that we have now. 
Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. So I want to dive into your work and I want to talk a little bit about how you help other women. You help other women improve their lives in really powerful ways through thought work. And I know some people listening might not know what thought work is, but it's really powerful and life altering. And I think a lot of people in my audience probably do more thought work than they know without knowing that that's what it's called. So can you talk just a little bit about what thought work is and how we can use it in our lives to shift the way our brains work? Yeah, I mean, people probably have different definitions of it. But for me, it just means creating awareness of what you are thinking and then choosing what you want to think on purpose. So it's working on your thoughts. Most of us just go around thinking things and then assuming that they're true because we think them. But that's actually not the case, which is maybe news to people who are listening, but certainly news to me when someone first mentioned it. Your thoughts come from a variety of places. There's a lot of evolutionary psychology involved and psychology and biology. And then there's all of your social conditioning and how your parents taught you to think and how what your friends thought and what the media tells you. So I think of it as like there's way too many cooks in the kitchen. So all of that kind of or the other way I think of it is like open source programming. I actually know nothing about programming except (laughs) that I know that open source programming means lots of different people can be working on a project and writing code. Mm. And that's what's kind of what's going on in your brain, but you don't even know it. And then the thoughts. So it's like all these different influences are programming your brain behind the scenes. And then a thought floats to the surface and you think, well, I must be thinking that because it's true, not knowing that your brain is not just like describing reality to you. It's actually been programmed in all these different ways. Right. Okay. I love that explanation. I think that's really helpful. I love that you throw coding in there because I'm sure most people listening are like, computer coding, what? (laughs) But I think that's a really great description and a good, powerful analogy. Talk a little more about the element of choice in there. Well, your unconscious thoughts you don't have choice about, right? And part of the problem is that we both believe the thoughts are true, but then also we judge ourselves for the thoughts that we have. So we make the thoughts mean something about us when in reality, you can learn to simply be aware of whatever thoughts kind of float up from that, you know, open source project or the too many cooks made or whatever metaphor you want to use and then decide whether you want to keep thinking them. And so most of us, it's fascinating when you start to listen to how people talk, like people will constantly say, well, I can't help but think blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Right. Like we act like we don't have any choice over how we think. But that's not true. We do. We don't have any choice about our initial subconscious thought, right? The thing that like floats up, that just happens. But we do get to decide whether we want to believe that thought, whether we want to keep thinking it and strengthen that neural circuit, whether we want to practice thinking something else on purpose. So I really think like the very basis of thought work is becoming aware of what you're thinking now and then deciding if you want to keep thinking that and if not, choosing what you're going to think on purpose. And you're really choosing either way. Either choose to keep thinking what you already think, but choose it on purpose or choose to change what you think. This is so helpful because I think it's easy for people to kind of feel maybe victimized by their thoughts and really um, trapped in their own stories. And so what I was thinking of when you were talking about the element of choice is that if we hear, sense, feel the thoughts coming in, acknowledge the thoughts coming in, and then we get to choose if we want to hold on to that or if we don't or if we want to change that. And there's a huge element of power in that. And I don't think we recognize the how much power we have in that. So talk a little bit about how you work with women 
to help them really use their power in their thoughts? Well, I mean, I teach a variety of different tools for working on your thoughts. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, different people specialize in different things. And I really specialize in helping women understand that all of their self-critical thoughts aren't just like our brain pretends that it's the weather reporter. You know, it's like, well, it's sunny today. Our brain's like, well, you're lazy. Don't Mm -hmm. have enough self-discipline. Right. And we just think like, oh, well, my brain's just reporting that. Yep. Like, well, your stomach's too fat. No one's going to love you. Like, we just think it's just reporting. But it's not. And so I really specialize in helping women see us. But a lot of us who are would identify as feminists or think about social conditioning, we understand conceptually that the media or patriarchy or society teaches women to doubt themselves and feel bad about themselves. Yes. But we haven't like really fleshed out how that happens and how you fix it. And so what I really work with women on is seeing how the thoughts that they think are true about themselves actually come from that social conditioning and all those messages Mm -hmm. they have been given and then using really concrete tools to change them. And I think because I was a lawyer and a skeptic and very analytical, I really focus a lot, especially with my newer students on using a neutral thoughts. So a lot of like the mindset work that's out there is positive thinking, Mm -hmm. which doesn't work for a lot of people because you don't believe it yet. So you have to, I think for positive thinking to work, you have to be someone who has the stamina and is willing to think something you don't believe over and over for months at a time. And most of us don't, aren't that person. And neutral thoughts help you build up to more positive thoughts step by step. And they're much more accessible. I heard you talking about neutral thoughts on your podcast the other day, and I am totally someone who maybe tries to coerce people into positive thinking. And I was like, oh, this is so much more brilliant. And I actually, so in my past life, in my past career as in the fitness industry and as a gym owner, I often talked about neutralizing food and neutralizing your relationship with food and not Mm -hmm. having good food days and bad food days and those kinds of things. But I hadn't thought about it in beyond that construct. And I hadn't thought about neutral thoughts outside of that area of life. And I was Mm -hmm. like, oh my gosh, this is so brilliant. And you're right. Like the effort and energy that it takes to impress upon yourself over and over uh, positive thinking patterns, it's really hard. And it kind of feels like BS if you're not in a already like semi-positive state. So I love the idea of shifting into neutral thoughts where that doesn't feel as hard and overwhelming. And it feels a little more accessible and attainable, I think. And then you're like creating a foundation from which you can grow into positive thinking patterns, would you say? Or would you agree? Yeah. But I also don't think that the goal of life is to think positive about everything. Yes. Right? And I talk that- more about that because I am like the Pollyanna that's like, just find the silver <laughs> lining. I mean, I think my life is amazing, right? And I, you know, as Susan Hyatt says, like, I love to stay in the miracle. But I also like if my mother dies, I want to be sad about it. Right. Right. I don't think that the purpose of life is to always feel positive. I think that you know, for me, the purpose of life is to live a conscious, intentional life and to be willing to be present with my experience, whatever that is. And when we are trying to whitewash positivity onto everything, I think it can become kind of this desperate dance where we're not willing to be present with an experience, negative emotion, and that catches up with you eventually. Right. Right. This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that supporting your health can be as easy as taking two capsules a day? Each daily dose of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is formulated with 24 scientifically studied probiotic strains that support gut, skin, and heart health. 
helping you start the new year off right. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code Spotify 25 to get 25% off your first month. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. So I relate to a lot of what you said about having our thoughts programmed over time very subconsciously, and especially the messaging that we receive as women, and then getting to a certain point of recognizing, oh, wait, like I'm obsessing about my belly fat because I've been trained to do that, or I'm obsessing about this certain thing, or I'm believing certain messages because of uh, societal or cultural programming, and then falling into this like anger and bitterness around all of that, because how Mm -hmm. dare the patriarchy make me feel this way. I see more and more women and I don't know. I mean, I think some of it is where we are culturally. I think some of it is where I'm at, like I'm 43. And I think that you just start recognizing these things in your life as you get a little older. So talk a little bit about your own thought work. And at what point did you start recognizing the patterns of the patriarchy, if you will, when did you start recognizing that and recognizing that in your own programming and start searching for something that felt more meaningful and resonated with you on a more, you know, deep or appropriate level and led you into this thought work and which I think. Oh, I see. Okay. Cause those are two separate phases of my life. I think okay. that's why the question was okay. confusing me. <laughs> I mean, I've been a feminist since I like basically could talk. So okay. It was not like I got to 35 and I was like, and then oh, you wait, like, I think there's something to that whole sexism <laughs> thing people are talking about. I have always, I think, been very aware of and interested in gender dynamics and okay. patriarchy and not just patriarchy, but all different systems of oppression, you know, sizeism, racism, classism, you know, homophobia, like there's a lot of different structures. So I've always been aware of those. And then at the same time, I have always been interested in kind of self-help and psychology and self-development. And like, I mean, I feel like I think one of my year senior yearbook quotes in high school was like, you know, the unmanaged life, the un, not my, uh, unmanaged is what I say about brains all the time. So that's what the word that comes out, but it's the unexamined life is not worth living. Mm. So I've always been very interested in, in that kind of like, what is life? Like, what is it to be a human? <laughs> what is going on? How do we understand our experience? How do we think about it? and very interested in questions of subjectivity and objectivity. And then I think those two things came together when, I mean, I don't think that there was like a catalyst moment. I think I was attracted to and found coaching because of my own kind of internalized thought patterns myself. And nobody was teaching it the way I teach it. So I didn't find coaching that was like the feminist answer. I just found kind of regular coaching and thought work. And I was sort of like, okay, wait, this seems like helpful. Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. I actually at the same time was learning kind of basic thought work from, well, not basic as in it's not advanced, but like from my teacher, Brooke Castillo, which was not sort of particularly feminist or patriarchy related, you know, it was just thought work. And then I was also taking a course from Isabel Fox and Duke about who's a, um, kind of food acceptance, body acceptance coach is a program called um, Stop Fighting Food. This was all, you know, maybe five or six or seven years ago. But I remember that I happened to be learning those two things at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I felt like 
I got more benefit out of the stop fighting food work than a lot of the other participants. And I think it was because I was adding the thought work tools to everything that we were being taught. It's like we were being taught all of the like political background. And it was the first time that I had really thought about like sizeism and, you know, like question the idea that everybody should want to be thin. And so I was like learning all of these this kind of political framework and tools for dealing with food. But then I was also learning thought work. And when I combined those, it was like more powerful than just one on its own. Right. That makes sense. So let's talk a little bit about that, because that's one of the interviews that I heard you speak in, which was with Brooke Castillo. It was so powerful the way you talked about your journey around your body, body acceptance, the thought work involved in all of that. Um, And I know that you work with women in that context now. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about that transformation for you? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like a lot of these questions are like, what is my life story? When I first found Brooke Castillo and actually Susan Hyatt hilariously together, they were teaching a class called weight school. Mm-hmm. It was the last thing I did when I was still trying to lose weight and thought that was the answer to all my problems. Okay. And- yes. Yeah, so this is where I want to start. <laughs> this is where like you were at this point of, I want to lose weight. I'm looking to be smaller. I'm looking to shrink. And then it sounds like this is where things started to shift for you. Well, I had took that program from them and I didn't actually end up sort of losing weight because for various like reasons, you know, I have my own opinions about how possible substantial prolonged weight loss is for most people. Anyway, so, but I had learned the thought work in the middle of that. I was kind of like, okay, well, I don't know about this weight loss stuff, but this thought work thing seems useful. And then that was my kind of last attempt at losing weight. And then I worked with a intuitive eating nutritionist. And then I did this work with Isabel Fox and Duke that was more kind of political and radical. And, you know, it's it's just kind of fascinating because, of course, Brooke, who is my teacher and mentor, and you heard me on her podcast, like we Mm -hmm. totally respect each other's work, even though we teach opposite things about this, (laughs) right, (laughs) in some ways. Like she uses these tools to help people lose weight. And I was like, well... If what I'm learning in thought work is that I only want whatever I want because I think it'll make me happy, that's true of losing weight also. Mm -hmm. So I only want to lose weight because I think it will make me happy. And okay, so what is it I want to be able to believe, right? I mean, this is like all of thought work in a nutshell, but teach that our thoughts cause our feelings. So whenever you want something outside of yourself, it's because of how you think you'll feel if you get it. Yes. But what you don't realize is that you're going to feel that way because of what you'll be thinking. So you think, oh, if I lose 100 pounds, I'll be happy. Mm -hmm. But in fact, what you're predicting is that you'll have the thought, now I'm pretty enough or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now people will love me, whatever it's going to be. And that thought is what will make you feel happy. So I think a lot of thought work is like, well, let's cut out the middleman where I try to manipulate and control other people or myself or the world or what I eat or whatever else to try to make myself happy. What if I just figure out what I need to think? And I just think that. Right. So then you can find the happiness now rather than having to go through the, through all the torture. And also it's a lie. You won't get the happiness by doing that. Yeah. And that too. Totally. Totally. Because you haven't changed your thought process. So if you've trained your brain to constantly tell you that you're not happy and it's because you're not thin enough, when you get to whatever weight you predecided it would be, your brain is still in the habit of thinking that, you're not good enough and something's wrong and you're unhappy. Right. So then you're just going to decide like, oh, I guess it wasn't the weight. I should lose more or I should do this other thing or maybe I need to get divorced instead or whatever else. Right. The destination is always going to feel like the journey did. So this is just like a problem with human 
cognitive biases is we have to understand is that our brain is constantly lying to us about how we're going to feel if we just get someplace, do something, make some money, lose some weight, marry that person, whatever it is. Right, right. And then we get there and we don't feel any different. We're like, fuck, I guess I got to blow up some other area of my life now. <laughs> right. So this was such a huge reason that I wanted to get out of the fitness industry after 16 years, because I finally realized, like I've had to be hit over the head with it a million times before I realized that people weren't chasing weight loss, they were chasing a feeling. And mm -hmm. it was so exhausting for women to be in this constant a valiant effort of trying to lose weight. And it was exhausting for me to try to support that. And I finally at a certain point was like, I cannot support this anymore. This is not like I am wasting my life's work having these same conversations around like belly fat and thick thighs and like all these things. And it felt so minimizing and degrading us at a certain point for me to be mm -hmm. doing that as a profession. And for the women who I was supporting, I was like, I can't sell this anymore. Like, I can't sell mm -hmm. a transformation program. I can't sell lose 10 pounds in 10 weeks. Like, it felt unethical and it felt immoral and it felt like dirty. And that's not to say there's not a play. Like, if you want to go lose weight, go lose weight. That's totally fine. But it became this like overwhelming feeling of just like, this does not feel like the right thing for me anymore. And I think a lot of that was mm -hmm. my own thoughts. I think there's some things I could have done to work you know, do some of my own thought work to stay in the fitness yeah. industry if I wanted to and be able to frame things in a more positive way, which I definitely was doing that in my last few years there. But I still just felt like, oh my gosh, I need to step back because I want to be able to talk to someone. And when I'm working with someone in the Shameless Mom Academy to say, you probably have had a weight loss goal as the number one goal in your life for like 30 years now. And mm -hmm. let's do something about that that has nothing to do with you going to the gym or eating more salad. Mm-hmm. And I think that is so powerful. Yeah. I mean, we're just all thinness is like, I feel like the major ideology of our time. It's like right. America first, thinness first. <laughs> you know, I, like we <laughs> totally. we're just all taught that being thin is better. Right? It's morally virtuous. And we have no we're not taught any kind of like social awareness or even anthropological awareness. I mean, the truth is that in all of human history, whatever is difficult to achieve is what the sort of upper class does. And then that becomes the beauty standard. So when in societies where there's not enough food to go around, the wealthy are fat and that's considered a status symbol, right? That's what everyone wants. Now in the Western world, we live in a situation where there's a huge abundance of food. It's actually harder to be thin because of the food that we eat. And so thinness is now the new thing, right? But like, we don't even question this and mm -hmm. I mean, you see this a lot with people who it's like people who lose weight. It's like people who win the lottery. They think their whole life is going to be different. And then they're like really sorely disappointed to find out <laughs> that nothing is different. Right. right. Like you wear a different clothing size. And, you know, I think fat bias is real. So, yeah, some people may treat you differently, but none of that causes your feelings anyway. It's how you think about yourself. Right. So you see people like lose weight and then they start getting plastic surgery or they start mm, drinking yes. Yes. or they start whatever because – you know, they were just trying to get to this goal so that they would feel better and then they don't feel better and they haven't developed the tools to actually kind of deal with their thoughts and feelings. Right. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about your experience in ending your pursuit of thinness and <laughs> tell us how that worked for you, what that looked like and the thought work that was involved. And because basically, like you said, like it is taking out the middleman, like I can get to the feeling good part without the torture of the losing 50 pounds part. Yeah. 
I think sometimes that the body image, any thought work that really tries to dislodge like patriarchy messages you've been getting since you were a child, I find is the hardest. So the body image and the thoughts about dating and men and love, Mm. like, and obviously not everybody is straight and dates men, but that's the, you know, the heterosexual image we're given in society. Those two are just, you have been thinking those thoughts like a hundred times a day, every day, your whole life. And so for me, there's like no magic thought that resolves that overnight. It really is a grind of just retraining your brain. So I just spent a lot of time. I practiced a lot of neutral thoughts. Like this is a human stomach. Lots of people have stomachs like this or whatever it was. I practiced constantly thoughts like, I only want to lose weight because I think it will make me happy and happiness is caused by my thoughts. It's available to me now. I did a lot for me and I were sold this story by society. Like if you're thin, then you're happy and your life is perfect. Mm -hmm. So whenever I would see thin women, I would have all of this kind of envy, jealousy and believing their life was perfect. And that's part of the whole kind of myth and oppression of thinness that keeps you trying to get it. And so I did a lot of practicing of the thought all beings suffer, which is true, right? I mean, the truth is we all know someone very thin and conventionally attractive who still gets cheated on, right? Mm -hmm. Or like who has a business flop or whose parents weren't nice to her, like whatever. It doesn't actually prevent human suffering, which comes from your mind, but we think that it does. So it was just a lot of like day in, day out practicing those thoughts and there were levels like that was a place where going straight to I'm a beautiful goddess was not going to happen so there's a lot of neutral thoughts and a lot of like step by step and I think the other thing you have to figure out is everybody's got their own version of like what is thinness going to get them and for me for a lot of people it's tied to romantic love which again you also think you want because it'll make you happy and make you feel good about yourself, mm-hmm. which it doesn't, mm-hmm. or and to like what to parental acceptance. So you also kind of have to do the work on like, what are you trying to get by losing weight? Mm-hmm. Like, what do you want to believe about yourself that you think you're only allowed to believe about yourself if you lose weight? Right, right. So two points that you bring up that I appreciate and that I think are counterculture. One, the grind of retraining your brain, like just fully admitting like this is a grind and you're going to do it over and over and over. And so I think that we are so trained for quick fixes. And so just like, you know, losing 100 pounds or 50 pounds or whatever, that is not going to be a quick thing. And it's not going to be easy to take off and keep off. Retraining your brain to love yourself where you are right now, also not going to be a quick fix and also not going to be an easy thing to sustain. It's the grind of just practicing over and over and over. And I think that when you look at people who are successful in reaching goals, a lot of it is showing up for the grind and being the person who's going to persevere and just keep showing up and practicing over and over and over until like you said, until, you know, you just getting to the place of neutral thinking is a, is a huge win. But I also think it's so important that one of these things you can totally control and Mm -hmm. has a benefit. Yeah. So some people can grind to lose 50 or 100 pounds, right? The science shows that a very, very small percentage of people keep it off over 10 years. And what do you have at the end of that if you haven't done any of this thought work? You just have less tissue on your body. Right. You are not actually any happier. Right. If you do the thought work, what you have is a tool and a skill that you can use on the rest of your life. You have more self-esteem, you have more self-acceptance, you have more self-love, you have more emotional resilience. Like you have the untold benefits and that you can totally control. Whereas we have a real cultural belief right now that our bodies are completely under our own control. 
which again is not what people have always thought about bodies, mm-hmm. right? Like societies have really varied in what they think causes illness or disease or size or anything else. Right now, we're really into believing that we can completely control our bodies like they are. We're like in the age of the machine, Right. Right. And so we're like, well, you just like put in the input and you get the output and like it's math. Like it's formulaic and it's not. Yeah. Or like it's a machine that we can just tinker with. Mm -hmm. But it's not. It's an incredibly complex biological collection of systems and processes that we don't even totally understand. Right. And so, you know, some people do find they can control their body just like society tells them they can. And then a lot of people find that they can't. Right. Right. And some of it has to do with stuff that you never even had a chance to control, like epigenetic, right? Like the trauma your grandmother experiences can impact metabolism. Like totally, a lot of things that you will never be able to control. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not gonna tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. This was the other thing that came up so much when I was in my work as in the fitness industry was people looking for the formula. Like everyone wants the formula. And then the pain of seeing the formula work for a certain, you know, you put 30 people in a group and you give them a formula and 5% are going to have these like over the top amazing results and 20% are going to have pretty great results. And there's like this trickle down. And then there's like this, you know, 10% at the bottom who are like, but what about me? The formula totally didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I totally agree about the idea of treating us as machines and looking for formulas and things that like that we can like mass produce. And that's just not how it works. And I also really appreciate that you brought up intergenerational trauma, because I think that's something that 
is so important to consider. And I think that it's not on enough people's radars. And it's something that I'm just starting to become a little bit more familiar with. But I think that's also a huge component as well. One thing I wanted to go back and touch on that made me laugh, but I think is important is you talk about embracing the idea that all humans suffer. And that sounds so like, that's not a fun, happy, warm, fuzzy thought. (laughs) But I also appreciate that we can recognize this. And I remember you and this might have been in the interview that you talked about like walking down the street in New York City. And Mm -hmm. anytime you would see a thin person being like, and they suffer too. And I kind of like the idea, like keeping it in a lighter way of like in any context of your life, when you're looking at someone who has more success or is living the dream you want to live, or they have the thinness or whatever the thing is, just fully embracing like, oh, and poor them, they suffer so much because that's honestly, that's the truth. Like no one is immune from it. And if we could almost project that onto more people. I mean, that sounds kind of sick, but if we could project that onto people, it would probably save us a lot of our own mental anguish. Yeah. I don't think it's sick at all. Right. I mean, this is like what Buddhism teaches us is that pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. Like negative emotion is part of the human experience. And part of the problem is that we think it's not supposed to be. So then if we have negative emotion, we think something went wrong. Mm, Right. We're like, this is unacceptable. I have to like drink wine or watch Netflix or eat or shop or just do whatever I can to get away from this. And I resist it so much because I think something's gone wrong. But the truth is all humans have negative emotion. You're supposed to, and it happens to everyone, whatever you look like. Yeah. So when you all go start listening to Kara's podcast, you will learn all about her cat. And Oh my God. Sirens, cats, like Manhattan is not a place people go to record podcasts (laughs) if they don't live here. I love it all. So, okay. I want to talk a little bit about how you've reframed your thinking around the word fat, because this is really interesting to me because of being in the industry and coming out of the industry. I see this happening a lot more commonly, but I want to hear how you have transformed your relationship with the word fat. And I want people to listen closely because I think this is important. You know, I'm not going to take credit for the work on the word fat because a lot of fat activists did that before me. And I don't think I did anything particularly unique about it, but fat is just a descriptor. Exactly. Like it just is the same as tall or short or brown haired or whatever else, right? The only reason it's considered an insult is because we think that it's bad. Right. So I have a six. It's not bad, then there's no problem. Exactly. So I have a six year old, and six year olds describe things as they are. And so I've heard him, you know, among friends of his, little girls and little boys, using fat as a descriptor of someone. So, oh, that man over there is fat, blah, blah, blah. And they say it like so neutrally, like it's not like, oh my gosh, look how fat he is. It's just a descriptor like, oh, that person has brown hair. But it's interesting as a parent, there's this like recoiling in me when I hear my son use that as a descriptor because I don't want him to make anyone feel bad. And I think that this is probably, I'm sure other parents can relate to this, that you're like, oh, I don't want my kid to be the person that's like pointing out that someone walking down the street is fat because that feels, you know, you feel uncomfortable and like you're giving someone like, you know, a put down or something. And the reality is... You don't cause that person's feeling because if somebody walking down the street, somebody's kid says, hey, you're fat, I'd be like, yep, that's true. Also brilliant and whatever else, right? Right. But if somebody who feels bad about it hurt it, then they would feel bad. Right. You know, and then you get... The only reason... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, and then we get into, and this is like a whole nother element of this is taking responsibility for other people's feelings. That like, I think many women want to protect other people's feelings. And so then we don't want to say things that might be offensive. Right. Well, and that comes up in, of course, mothering, like being a parent, a huge amount. And I think one of the, you know, we have talked a lot about on this episode so far about kind of body image and, 
you know, confidence. There's a lot of different ways that kind of patriarchal thoughts fuck with women's lives. But mothering and parenthood, right, is a huge place that women absorb and internalize all of these messages about like what the perfect mother is and how responsible she is for how the children turn out and all of the self-sacrifice and what mothers should feel for their children and how they should behave and how perfect they should be. And all of that, right, is also, you know, women think those thoughts and then think that they're just true, right? but they're actually part of a whole kind of ideology about motherhood. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> that many of us get trapped into very quickly and very easily. So we have stories in our heads about certain parts of our lives. And I know that for many women, the stories in our heads are along the lines of I've, I've always struggled with my weight, or I have bad genes. And it's amazing to me how many times I've heard these stories. And I remember very distinctly a woman who was like 122 pounds talking to me endlessly about how she'd struggled with her weight her whole life. And I was getting more information and like asking like the range of weight that she had been. It was like she'd never been over 130 pounds. And so this these stories that we get trapped in are so fascinating to me because of the way that they're similar from person to person, even though like in the weight uh, category specifically, you know, like I would say that the story that a woman who is 130 pounds and 230 pounds and 330 pounds. Often it's the same story. And the person who's, let's say 330 pounds looks down and is like, wait, but the person who's 130 pounds has the same story that they've always struggled with their weight and that they have bad genes. So can you, your external circumstances don't create your feelings, right? right? It's your thoughts. I mean, what is true is that the person who is 333 pounds is having a very different social experience than the person who's 130 130 pounds, which also doesn't cause your feelings, but is different, right? I mean, there's sort of body positivity sometimes gets, I think, co-opted to be like, you know, women who are a size two being Mm -hmm. the forefront of the body positivity movement or sort of like we're body positive unless you're like too fat and then no, that's bad. Right. Or like then that's not healthy or whatever. So, but yeah, the internal experience, right, is can be exactly the same because, it's not caused by your external circumstances. It's caused by your thoughts and your feelings. And I mean, it takes so long to unpack this stuff because it is so deeply ingrained. But even if like your listeners who hear this episode just start even just being curious with yourself about why fat is bad, mm. right, as opposed to just believing that it is, right, we have a whole lot of thoughts about why being fat is bad that don't actually stand up to scrutiny. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. How did your mindset have to evolve for you to move permanently away from some of the behaviors that you were struggling with when you were, I know that you had some, especially around binging and purging, you had some behaviors and you would get through certain points or to certain points in your thought work. And my sense from listening to you talk about this in your interview with Brooke was that you would get to a certain point and think that like these behaviors were behind you and then they would resurface. And I think that this is also really common and that we get to a certain point in our journey where we think like maybe we have better control of our thoughts and we're in a more either neutral or more positive space. And then we have regressions and it's never linear. Can you talk a little bit about your experience and kind of how that looked for you? I totally agree with you things are not linear. I don't think that that was really my experience with binging and purging. I really found that I binged and purged like maybe with varying intensity, but pretty much from high school until my early thirties. And then when I stopped trying to restrict my food, I stopped binging and purging. I didn't stop binging right away, but I stopped Mm. purging right away. Okay. Okay. Because the purge was always like, Oh no, I ate this food. I'm going to get fat. That's bad. 
Okay. Okay. Because I wasn't fat at the time. Like I gained weight when I stopped trying to control my eating. Mm -hmm. And that's the other, like people, you know, intuitive eating or even just stopping restricting what you eat, you know, people, people's bodies change in all sorts of ways. Some people kind of stay the same. Some people lose weight and some people gain weight, right? It just all depends on whether you were keeping yourself artificially low by restricting or you were, you know, mostly overeating for comfort. And then when you stop doing that, you lose weight. Like people are all over the map. But for me, I was artificially keeping my body weight artificially low by purging. Okay. And so when I stopped purging, I gained weight. But I really – the purging stopped very quickly. The binging, I think, took longer. But I also like – that's something I applied thought work too because what is a binge? Like somebody will tell you they binged and they mean they ate a whole pizza and someone will tell you they binged and they literally mean they ate six almonds when they didn't have that on their plan. <laughs> That's such a good point. That's yeah, you're totally right. So we just act like we know what that means. But a binge is a thought. It's not a circumstance. Mm. And I have found like, since then, there have been very rare occasions when it's come back for me. And you know, maybe like twice over five years, and both have been times when I basically like temporarily lost my mind and started trying to restrict the way that I ate Mm. (laughs) in order to lose weight, like not going to lose weight. But like, you know, I actually think it's amazing how I'm constantly surrounded by weight loss coaches. Those are all my colleagues now. And I don't teach that. Uh, but <laughs> that I, is interesting. I'm like, yeah, it's just because that's because Brooke was a weight loss coach. And that's right. who trained me and all my, you know, friends, not they don't all coach on weight loss, but a lot of them just around a lot of weight loss coaches a lot. And so maybe like once every two years, I have like a bout of temporary insanity. And I start believing Well, I think that's such a great point, though, that it's not, I mean, it goes back to the point that it's not linear. But I think it's really valuable to point out that it's not like you get to a certain point and you're like, now I have control over all the thoughts and I'm good. (laughs) No way, because you wouldn't be like, well, I ran a marathon once, so I could do it at any time now without practicing. Right, right. There's definitely no finish line. Yeah, there's no finish line. And that would be kind of boring if you had all of life figured out. Right, right. Like, what would you do from now until you die? Right. And I think that it's exciting to know. I think that there's a lot of power in knowing that like, oh, okay, so I've come so far and I've, you know, learned to think so differently and which allows me to be more powerful in all these different areas of my life. And therefore, things are going to get hard again at some point. I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to face adversity and I'm going to face struggles and things are going to be ugly and painful and uncomfortable. And then I get to like start applying this stuff again in a new way. And I get to like learn and stretch and grow in new and different and uncomfortable ways. I think embracing That's the fun that. part. Right. Right. And when we're <laughs> in it, sometimes it does not feel fun. But I think that as you do the work, it definitely starts to feel like the things that maybe at one point would have felt crushing to you instead feel like you can look forward to it with a little bit of excitement. Like, oh, here we go. Like now I get to test this on myself. I get to see how far I can go with this and what that feels like and how I can push, you know, certain edges into new spaces. Yeah. I mean, I think when you get to the point where like when you have a strong reaction to something, you're actually just kind of curious. I think that's the magic place when you're like, whoa, that was interesting. Why did I just want to punch that guy? Like let me see what's happening with my thoughts. Right. Right. Yeah. And I love that idea of being curious. That's something I talk a lot about with my community is, rather than having like a regression and like, or, you know, falling apart or, or getting super defensive about something, it is that curiosity I think is so important. And I think that that curiosity can really almost be a way of protecting ourselves sometimes so that we don't let ourselves fall into you know negative spaces or places where we maybe don't want to go. 
Yeah, I just don't believe in the concept of regression. I mean, my clients do this all the time. They're like, I fell off the wagon. Or I've been backsliding. Or I'm backtracking. Or, you know, those are all just thoughts. It's yeah. not the weather report. <laughs> right. Like if you have that kind of brain, you're replicating it in all areas of your life. So if you're someone who constantly thinks that you're falling off the wagon with your eating, you're going to constantly think you're falling off right. the wagon with your thought work or whatever right. else. Right. Right. And you have to rec- like, what if you're just a human who's going to be alive for a lot of days and some of those days you eat carbs and some of them you don't. <laughs> right. Right. You're like, what if you're a human who's alive for a lot of days and some of those days you remember to do thought work and some of those days you don't. Yeah. It's so much less drama than I was doing perfectly and then I fell off the wagon and now, right. It's like so much drama. It's unnecessary. Right. Right. And I would say among high achievers and perfectionistic type A controlling kind of people, which I would classify myself as all of those (laughs) things. I think that there's such a need and I have to like be so conscientious of not letting myself fall into these patterns. There's such a need to be like, but I did this for 47 days in a row. Like we want to have these like streaks. of. I say, I don't know if you know this, but I literally in my program, I say we are team hashtag no streaks. Um, I love it. This is so the opposite of I became a runner when I was like 20 in secret. I didn't want anyone to know about it. And I started tracking how many days in a row I could run. And at one point I was up to like 42 days in a row or something ridiculous and stupid. But I thought there was so much value in these streaks. And then as I got into the world in business coaching in the last 10 years, I actually did a whole program with Dan Sullivan, who has a great brain for business, but he had this thing about tracking wins and they had what they were called win streaks where you track your wins every day. And so the, I like replaced my running habit that I had years ago with this new no, win streak. No streaks. And it was tracking wins every day. And so now in my community, because I work with so many perfectionistic moms, I'm like, I think there's value in tracking and like seeing, okay, if I do this more often than not, how does that feel? And what does that feel like and look like? But I agree that when you get into the perfectionistic mode of like a streak needs to be a certain amount of days or it's not a win or it's not a success, then that's like you've lost the value and the perspective of what really matters. You also will do it less. Like if you just tell yourself, I try to do this and sometimes I don't and that's fine. Let's say you do it two thirds of the time. If you are in streak mentality, yeah, you'll do it 100% of the time for three weeks and then you won't do it for nine months. Exactly. exactly. Before you start up again. So over time, you're going to do it less by focusing on streaks than you are by being on team no streaks. That's my pitch for team no streaks. <laughs> I love it. A bunch of people just sighed a big sigh of relief. <laughs> big, a communal exhale. Okay. So what is the, I mean, we've touched on this in a few different ways, but what is the impact to women when we understand the power we have over our thoughts? I mean, everything, there's nothing yes. in your life that is not created by your thoughts. So I just think like every single part of your life changes when you manage your mind. And that might mean, getting married or getting divorced or making a million dollars or becoming, you know, a basket artist who lives on $10 a day. Like it does nothing to do with what you do externally, but it's being able to choose the kind of life you want on purpose and be able to create it for yourself and to actually be in control of your brain rather than constantly feeling like, you know, you have all these unhelpful thoughts, but you don't know what to do about them. Right. How do you live shamelessly every damn day? I mean, I obviously have no filter and will say anything (laughs) on the internet or off. So I feel like I like try to put a warning on my podcast episodes when I don't think my parents should listen to them. But other than that, (laughs) I would say I'm pretty shameless. (laughs) That's hilarious. I was just listening to an interview where someone was saying, talking about like, there's so many podcast episodes they're going to do after their parents die (laughs) because they feel like they Yeah, I'm just like, hey, don't listen to this one. (laughs) I love it. Okay. This has been so great. I so appreciate you being here, Cara. This is 
I think really, really important work that you're doing. And I appreciate the way that you do it with humor and just a ton of truth telling. Can you tell people where they can find you, where they can connect with you, where your show lives and all those things? Yeah. So you can find me on anywhere you get your podcast. My podcast is called Unfuck Your Brain, but spelled with an asterisk. So it's U-N-F asterisk C-K your brain. But you'll have show notes so you can find them there. Or you can just go to www.unfckyourbrain.com forward slash podcast or search my name. There's only one Carl Lowenthal. Um, awesome. And well done. You, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. And we'll also put in the show notes, I do a five-day free confidence challenge. Oh, Gives you five days of concrete thought work prompts to help change your thought patterns and build confidence. So we can put that in the show notes and that's a great way to start doing some sort of focused thought work on how you feel. I will put that in the show notes. That'll be really valuable. So if you found value in this conversation and you want to take it to the next level, which I think many of you will want to, um, definitely pop over to the show notes over at shamelessmom.com and we'll have that linked up for that five-day challenge. Cara, thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate you and I appreciate your work. And I'm so glad we finally got this to work. Me too. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me in the Shameless Mom Academy today. I really, really appreciate you being here and I hope you learned something new. As always, this conversation will be continued over in our free private Facebook group. You can join that group by going to shamelessmom.com forward slash Facebook to connect with other shameless moms just like you. Additionally, if this is your first time listening to the show, know that we are here every Monday and Wednesday with a brand new episode. So make sure you subscribe, go to whatever podcast app you use and subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. You can do that directly if you go to shamelessmom.com forward slash review that will put you in Apple Podcasts where you can click on the subscribe button and you can also leave a review. If you scroll down a little bit, you can leave a five-star review. You can write a few sentences letting me know what you thought about the show. If you let me know how the show has impacted you in becoming a more shameless mom, you might be nominated to be shameless mom of the week. Also, please share this episode. My goal is to help more mamas be more shameless every damn day. So please do share this episode. You can take a screenshot of the episode on your phone and then share it out on social media. Tag me at the Shameless Mom Academy on Facebook or Instagram. I'm quick to reply and eager to send you Facebook love and love to be connected to all of you. So again, thank you for being here. I can't wait to be back here again with you in just a couple days. And until then, no matter what you do today, make sure you do it shamelessly. Hey, are you a parent of a teenager? Are you feeling overwhelmed about how to be what they need while also holding limits and boundaries that keep them safe? Are you tired of conversations that negate how messy this season of parenting is? 
Well, I've got you. My name is Casey O'Rourke. I am a positive discipline trainer, parent coach, and the host of the Joyful Courage podcast. Every week I come to you with an interview, digging into tough topics with experts I trust and solo shows that go deep into the personal growth and mindset needed to raise teens in a way that grows them into confident, capable young people. I am not afraid of getting real about the intersection of conscious parenting and the teen years, while also bringing in vulnerability, humor, and lightness. I'm walking the path with you and honored to serve. Listen to Joyful Courage on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts.